like to see myself as a high yield return on investment, you know, like pay me X and I'm, I will deliver you two times the results, you know, and just mm-hmm. that's really what drives me is just, I never want a sponsor to feel like oh, we just wasted a lot of time on Sophia. Like I want them to be like, dang, Sophia delivered for us above and beyond what it was expected. And I think that's just been constantly my trajectory since pursuing this as a career. It's like, okay, I think I've always delivered more than was expected of me. And that's just how I, just how I operate, I think. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. Yeah. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we talking about practice. Repeat on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is The Adventure Stash with Payson McKelvin. Hello everyone, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I also want to say a quick thank you to all of y'all that have sent in messages and even said it in person, how much you enjoyed the recent Gravel Worlds recap episode. The response has been crazy. One of our most listened to episodes already, and it's only been out there for a week. I'm here at the Big Sugar Grand Prix final race. This is the seventh and final round in the Grand Prix. We raced Little Sugar last weekend, so I've been here in Bentonville for over a week already, and kind of like we were hypothesizing earlier on a couple of previous episodes, this big doubleheader event, one mountain bike race, you know, five days in between of fun expo and activities and all kinds of stuff, plus outer bike is going on here right now, and then the big sugar gravel race, you put it all together and... This week in Bentonville feels like another Sea Otter Classic almost. Um, I was out on a fun little shakeout ride yesterday with a good handful of folks, a little uh, group ride that Smith and the Meteor put together, and almost every single person at some point came up and said that they appreciated the podcast in general or especially the the World's Recap episode. So thanks, everyone, for the support. It goes a really long way. I'm really excited to bring you today's conversation uh, with someone that we haven't ever had on the podcast, and it's kind of long overdue, but we sort of made up for lost time. This is a longer one, definitely some great topics and lots explored. Obviously, Sophia's been a top racer in the country for a good number of years now, but one thing that some might not know is that she and I actually went to college together and we're on the, we're on the Fort Lewis College cycling team together. So we had lots to talk about, so sit back, enjoy, and I will catch you after the show. Okay, Sophia, we're finally doing one of these. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget. I forget why we started talking about it. But a couple I mean. months ago, sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, a couple months ago, I said we we finally need to do a podcast. You you said I'd be happy to talk about it on the podcast, but I don't remember what it was. But then you were like, let's let the internet cool off for a month before yes. we... But I don't even remember what it was. Really? Yeah. Remember I messaged you? So after Unbound, you did an interview with Caroline, who won Unbound. Uh-huh. And 
you know, there was some... Oh, the ice pack. The Yeah, the yes. ice thing. And, you know, there was a clip that was used on your um, Adventure Stash podcast, kind yeah. of giving like a little soundbite of like... I, it, she made me look really bad and her and I have talked and everything's okay, but the clip that you guys use felt like a little bit like it was clickbait. Mm. So I kind of sent you a note and I asked you to like, hey, pin my comment. Yeah, that's uh, right. You know, I just... There's always somebody's side, like her side, my side, and then somewhere in the middle is the truth, right? And then you ask me like, oh, do you want to come and tell your side of the story? And I'm like, no, that, that that's not me. Um, obviously, everything between her and I is fine. And, you know, if my response was a lot of people like, if y'all think that I have Lifetime likes me so much that they'll take me at my word and make somebody turn around like that is so not true at all. And, you know, they saw it happen and they enforced that to her. And really, in the end, it was, you know, she had an ice pack, grabbed it on with her left hand, tossed it into the ditch. I told her, hey, we don't litter here. She said the standard European like it fell out of my hand. Like it, it doesn't fall out of your hand. And sure enough, Michelle and a photographer were right behind. And I asked, like, did you see her litter? And they're like, yeah. And they came up and they're like, you have to turn around and get that. So turn around 30 seconds, found it. I think maybe she didn't even find it. I don't really know. And then I slow rolled. And as soon as she made contact with me again, she attacked. I'm like, okay, like if you're going to attack me, like it's we're racing, like we're not working together. And then she was mad. I wasn't pulling. And, um, this is yeah. awesome. So this is like, this analogy might not land for some people, but this is like the movie, the dark Knight, where it just starts with a crazy bank heist scene and we're like, Oh shit, we're off and rolling. Um, I don't want this podcast to be just Sophia explains controversial yeah. bike racing things the whole time, but I kind of like how we're just like taking off the gloves. We're going to talk about the yeah. most recent, like, uh, I don't know, yeah. prickly gravel racing thing. Um, yeah. That is funny, though. I forgot about that. I uh, mean, and you did say, I, I mean, I'm going to true to who I am. You did that say a quote on there about like, oh, like she couldn't beat you with her legs. So she tried everything to. Yeah, but that's yeah. what that's what. But that's not what I was doing. Like I Fair. wouldn't, I would never force somebody to turn around to get an unfair advantage. Yeah. Although I truly thought that littering was against the rules of Unbound and it's actually not against the rules. So in theory, <laughs> they should have never, never made her turn around. And for that, I do feel bad, but Dude. I'm like, I thought she was going to get DQ'd if she didn't yeah. turn around. Uh, but she's such a strong racer and yeah, I was stoked. I was stoked to have her there. And, um, that's I, funny though, because there are, I feel like there are, and maybe it's wrong to put you in this camp, but there are racers, especially it seems like often in Europe where like really some of the top racers who use everything at their disposal to win a race. And I can't think of specific examples that I've been a part of recently, but I think of like, I don't know, people, people I would expect that from and not necessarily in a negative way, but like Russell or even Keegan, I think Todd Wells in some ways was like that. We're like, and we'll get into this, like it's a job and there are a handful of racers who are willing to look at every single detail of a tech guide of obviously the course and just find edges. And it happens in, basically every top level sport f1 is probably the 
the biggest example where it's literally like the culture of the sport because you have the rule book and everyone's trying to innovate around the rule book. But yeah, I think like in certain scenarios, like in gravel where there's this weird um, tightly knit group where there's all these social dynamics, there's a handful of, of riders who like carry that tradition of just being super, super professional and totally prepared, whether it's equipment or knowing down to the word, the rule book, all these different things. And you're, you're one of those racers. So in that scenario, like I wouldn't have been surprised if you were using that as an advantage. Um, but you're by far not the only one that I would see doing that. Does that make sense? Yeah. But and I, I don't, I don't think it's, I guess in that moment, like totally, when I said that on the podcast, for sure it came across negative and I'm sure you're like, that's not very nice. <laughs> very and, much so. <laughs> yeah. But, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I was trying to compliment you in the moment, but when I think about it overall, like just that attitude, like it's, it has to be one of the reasons overall, that attitude has to be one of the reasons that you Keegan, some of the other folks like are just consistently really good and consistently get results. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, especially in this whole gravel off-road endurance thing, it's such a different standard of rules across each race. And mm -hmm. some of them are super vague and you're like, well, what does this mean? Like crusher, like what is technical support? Are we allowed to switch wheels or give a CO2 or a helping hand? Or, you know, I think I love rules and I love knowing what my parameters are and working within that. And I do think I've definitely struggled in this gravel scene where, it's kind of the wild, wild west. And, mm -hmm. you know, like, where do you draw the line? Because I always see, well, if it's not illegal, then it's fair game. But yeah. then, you know, I remember Russell and I came to Bentonville to do rule of three last year. And there are no rules on rule of three. And we're like, hey, do we like switch bikes? I heard about last, this. In the last 25 yeah. miles. And it was like our first gravel race. I'm like, how do we want to come out in the first gravel race? Yeah. Because you finish with 25 miles of single track. So I think actually hopping on a hardtail, it would have been quite the sweet move. And, um, you know, we just happened to have our van that had equipment from sea, or from sea Otter and Whiskey that was going to Emporia. So we just happened to have those bikes here. And I told Russell, I was like, well, if you switch, I'll switch, but it's your call, you know? And we were thinking maybe you would do it because you were with Allied. You would have had a mountain bike Really? Here. You think I would have done that? Well, I don't know. We didn't know. I see. My head doesn't work that way though. And so here's another example um, that just came to mind. Uh, Russell asking Howard to be on like wheel duty at Unbound this year. Actually, Howard, I mean, I should double check this with Howard, but I'm pretty sure Howard offered to ride unbound in support of Russell because he was not there to seek a performance aspect or result. He was just, I need to do this because of the Grand Prix unbound is a big deal for the industry and specialized. And if I can help my teammate, and if that means helping chase down attacks or giving him equipment, then that's mm. what I'm going to do. Yeah. Uh, I definitely wasn't uh, team orders or anything like that. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Then when he passed me after fixing his flat, he was like so concerned that he would look like he was helping me that he attacked and shattered my group of three people. <laughs> and it took yeah. me about 140 miles to forget him, forgive him for that because it maybe that cost me unbound because then I was by myself. I, oh, mean, I think I rode 70% of unbound solo this year. And you know, huh. that mentally is really hard. Yeah. Um, and that at that point I was leading and then 
yeah, it was just unbound was a miserable race this year for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, Howard, I think he got a lot more enjoyment out of knowing that he could go help his teammate perform. Hmm. And then maybe at some other time, then Russell can, you know, return the favor to Howard. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, okay. Anyway, so we're in Ben, speaking of rule of three, um, we're in Bentonville. We had a big mountain bike race this past weekend. Um, big as in big effort, not necessarily the biggest fields, which was interesting. Be interesting to see if, if this one grows, I almost felt like it was like the payout structure almost made it. I'd be curious to hear your take on this. The payout structure almost made it so it was like a time trial world where those fields are really small because only the people that think they can be in the money would show up. Do you think that effect happened at all? Oh, 100%. And I think, you know, I'm thankful for everything that Lifetime is doing for the sport with, you know, the Grand Prix and, you know, even doing this mountain bike race. At first, this mountain bike race was the thing the top three got paid and it was like three grand to win and nobody got excited. And the next thing it was 12 grand to win. Uh, but I do think that a lot of these races, the payout is really top heavy Yeah. and you know, there's a lot of people six through 10th or even six through 12th that deserve to actually be making a payout. And I think we would have been just as happy if it was $10,000 for the win and then maybe a little bit better of a trickle down effect to top, pay the top 10, kind of like Epic Rides did. I mm-hmm. think, you know, didn't they pay top 20 here? They, no, Back it was always 12th. No, it was always top 12. I thought the the three the finale here. longer standing epic rides were 12 deep. And then this last, I might be making that up, but I feel like it went deeper. Anyway, it was kind of weird. And the thing that got me, like 12 grand for the win, great. That's awesome. Um, but wasn't second like 8,500? Yeah, or I, thought, I thought it was eight. <laughs> I and was then, like, I've never seen that in my life. <laughs> yeah, and then, I mean, I got six grand for third really place. Really? Crazy. Yeah. Still, right? It's like... Ryan I'm, and I were nine and ten, and we're like, ah, would have been cool if, like, went further than yeah. fifth. Because, like, nine and ten isn't amazing, but it's still top ten. Like, yep. usually you get payout for that. That has a rate mm-hmm. where there's almost 70 grand in payout for yep. the race. But, yeah. No, and I was talking with Taylor Lindeen when I was in mm. Leadville for the Leadville stage race. And, you know, we were just talking about Lifetime Grand Prix and just a bunch of other stuff. And he was saying how it'd be really cool to see some of these races have a deeper payout for the field because, you know, the people that are winning the prize money are the people that have good, for the most part, have good salaries, have bonus incentives, yeah. you know, everything is taken care of. And for me, a that six grand, you know, take taxes out, but it's all, I get to keep all that money. It's not like I need to cover expenses. But then Taylor was saying, you know, like sometimes you win 300 bucks and you're like sick that covered gas or that covered one night of my Airbnb. And, you know, I think that's like the current problem with gravel, either a not paying or only paying top five or, you know, these races that pay a lot of money, but it's not actually spread throughout the field is that those people that are always sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, they're not going to be motivated to come to these races because when they look at the start list and you see Pickcock, Swenson, Beers, Finsterwald, Grotz, Cole, you you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. good luck trying to make some money. And it's not cheap to travel to Bentonville, especially if you're going to do Big Sugar, Little Sugars, two weeks that you're here. Um, so I think it would be really cool to start to see just bigger price purse at all these races and then to see that be paid out a bit deeper and I think that's where Todd and the Epic Rides crew just had it so nailed down and I never realized how good we had it with Todd 
you know um and you're like okay I think he kind of got how to make a race series that he valued the presence of the pros and what we're able to bring and he rewarded us with you know really good prize money we had our own race day and all of that stuff but yet we never took away from the experience of the amateurs and they have their after party and the beer on cores and at whiskey 50 they always had like the whiskey shots up at the top and um where I kind of sometimes look at lifetime and I'm like okay how why is it that you know the payouts don't go so deep or like why don't we if the goal is to really have all these top athletes at your events I think in my eyes it makes sense to offer big prize money at all of these races because had there been 10 grand five grand to win the rad I maybe would have gone to the rad instead Mm. you know or like I don't think you need the series to get all the athletes to show up. I think we just show up when there's good prize money. And yeah, I've also wondered about because my understanding is to an extent, they're almost trying to make a mini league. Right. And the only other cycling version I can think of that with smaller fields is the super prestige in cross. I think it's a super prestige. And virtually all those riders get paid start money, I think. Like, just to show up, you Mm -hmm. get a paycheck. Obviously, there's a whole um, economic ecosystem around that that's way bigger and way healthier than, uh, you know, what... Because we're we're only two years into the Grand Prix. So, um, obviously, in Belgium, it's a mainstream sport, so it's kind of apples and oranges. But I had wondered about, like what if there was some sort of financial reward or incentive for every race that you completed or every race that you showed up to, or even if you finished out the series, um, like, could you, and that in a way it would be like this, it would be a slight writer accountability thing, but then also sort of like sneaking in the back door of what one of the requests was early on, I think was just, um, paying for some support for the riders to get to the races, like covering Mm -hmm. more than just entry fee. Um, maybe that would be, I don't know what the economics Mm -hmm. of that would look like, but, um, yeah, but even that I'm like it, I think there needs to be legit payout at each of the stops Mm -hmm. and then, you know, standardized, like it'd be cool if it was all rather than like this wishy-washy like i need to look up if this is one of the races that have payout i can't remember yeah i mean there's only three it's sea otter which was 500 400 three two (laughs) 100 even though it's one of the biggest races in north america and you got it was the same payout if you race the the lifetime one which was two laps or you could race sunday the one lap and it was exactly the same payout yeah the same payout i think all the events paid the same you know you have crusher pays top three a thousand dollars to win 500 250 and then the biggest one is actually schwammigan which is hilarious 25 grand shortest race shortest days like it's a good (laughs) minute per dollar of suffering uh but then you know i look at events like unbound and leadville they're the two biggest events in the u.s they cost a lot of money to get to a leadville entry is like what 500 bucks Mm -hmm. unbound is maybe what 300 and you got to do the lottery to get in and there's zero dollar price purse you know and i've asked about it and they said you know they feel like maybe paying at unbound goes against the spirit of gravel and that leadville has never been about the payout and it's you should just be happy that you completed such a big task and that's when i'm like okay but these races have gone to a level of professionalism and you have some of the fastest riders showing up and it's almost insulting that they don't pay you know and i even thought of last year like hannah finchamp she won leadville 
and then she got concussed, had a horrible schwammigan. And let's say something had happened to her that she couldn't have started Big Sugar. And she would have won the biggest race in the U.S. on mountain bikes and not gotten any payout for it because she wouldn't have been top 10 in the Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. You're just like sometimes in the that economical thing, I just don't really see it. And then it just would be nice for the other people that aren't part of the Grand Prix to be able to make some money as mm-hmm. well when mm-hmm. they're dedicating so much time into these events. But, um, yeah, and make it so you can not an invite thing because that's the other thing, right? Like this year, they what they gone to 30, so they took 10 spots away. I don't know why, maybe you know why, but, um, I, I think that- they felt like there were five ish racers in each group that weren't contributing to the overall story because I think that's another thing that's just like a philosophical difference that I think some. Like, it sounds like you think it should be open to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I get that perspective. But I also really feel like there's huge potential in trying to create something that's easily understood by the fans. Like, why is the Williams team in F1, who, like, barely ever finishes better than 17th, why do they have rabid fans? Because the characters are known. They're the worst team on the grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Because there's only 20, like, it's tough. It, I totally see the argument. It's like, it's almost like one of those political topics where, like, I can understand why Republicans think one thing and Democrats see the other. But, like, I really see the upside of having it be limited. And it's so counterintuitive. But I just think here in the U.S., because it's not a cultural sport, because it's a French sport, like, if we actually want it to be professional and we actually want more than the top 10 to make a real living like there has to be a new model like the pro xct like unless you're podiuming consistently no one was making money Mm -hmm. and i don't see how this is different if that's the way it's if that's the same thing moving forward just personally yeah but i mean is there financial resources to have the lifetime grand prix with the big money and yet have a price purse at all the other events sorry say that again like you have your Grand Prix selective mm-hmm. field application, whatever, 30 riders, 30 females, 30 males, but then have overall payout that's standardized across your seven races that you have. Yeah. Therefore, so someone like Caroline, who won Unbound, she actually would make some sort of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope she had bonuses for that race, but, um, or like I look at, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, I think we i realize the privilege that i have that i don't have to i'm not afraid of being cut like i know if i want to do the grand prix i'm in you know like even the first year i'm like i knew i was like it would have been crazy for them to have denied me i was Mm -hmm. olympian i was one of the top u.s racers i didn't see that I wasn't going to make it in. Then you finish second. Okay, I'm in for year two. And now it's top 15. You're automatically in mm-hmm. for third year. So I understand the privilege that I have to not have to worry about being accepted. And I also see a lot of the racers that are trying to establish themselves how hard it could be to get in and kind of, you know, saying you're part of the Grand Prix means a lot and you can get a lot more sponsorship dollars, I would assume. So I just, I just feel for the people that are like, yeah, on that chopping block, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, how you fill... So now the top the, the top 15, you know, you punch your ticket. How you select the other 15, 
I, I don't know what direction that goes, how it gets refined over time, but that is like a big thing that needs to get tackled. Mm-hmm. But like by definition, just picking 15 writers randomly globally, like how do you even begin to do that? So I totally get that from at a very basic level, like limiting it to only an additional 15 writers creates all sorts of issues. Um, but again, going back, like I just think that in the US, I mean, you were at Worlds. Like mm-hmm. it had been a while since I'd raced a race of that level in Europe. And it was such a reminder. I was like, oh yeah, it's a freaking mainstream sport here. Like even gravel in its second ever Worlds, like the number of fans and everything was just like, oh yeah, okay, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so here we're like, I keep using the term we, whoever is really pushing a boulder up a hill to try to legitimize and professionalize a a fringe sport. So I don't think there are any easy answers really. Um, And we can kind of get into like how you have contributed to that because we're all sort of in our own way, like contributing to what it will be next year, five years from now, 10 years from now. But um, yeah, I think that's why, like we started this conversation with, I think that's why little internet battles flare up is like everyone's just trying to figure it out Mm -hmm. and we all come from different angles we all have different goals um anyway for what that's worth going back to the present um would you so it's not going to be in the grand prix next year but would you like to have seen that little sugar mountain bike race in the series next year because it was like 50 50 going to happen not going to happen yeah, I mean, the rumor was that instead of the rad this year, it was going to be Little Sugar. Yeah. And what I heard from the rumor mill um, is that a lot of the road racers felt that Little Sugar Mountain Bike was going to be too hard of a race for them, <laughs> which is a bummer because it's like, it, that's a legit mountain bike race, you know? Um, you get to drop two. Maybe that's a drop race. But it's also a gamble because it's back-to-back weekends where if mm-hmm. you're sick, yep. then you're like, or if you get Bad injured. News. You know, it's yep. it, logistically is really hard. Um, that being said, I was as bummed as I was to have this not be part of the Grand Prix. I think it also yielded the possibility to have this amazing price purse. Mm. And as a mountain biker, I looked at that and I'm like, okay, if, as long as I keep air in my tires, I think I can be top five. So selfishly, I was pretty stoked it wasn't part of the Grand Prix. And, then, and especially there's also a rumor that maybe there'll be more prize money at this event la- next year. I don't know if that means more More at little sugar, more at little sugar. Yeah. They're wanting to grow it, but I don't know. That's all rumor. You never know. Sometimes (laughs) we think we know what lifetime's going to do and it gets announced and we're like, what? Like that's new. I didn't hear that. Um, so, but yeah, I missed the rad and it sounded like that was actually a really cool race. And, Mm -hmm. um, it was a bit of a bummer to see that's the same seven. I think we were all looking forward to some sort of change up uh but i know russell suggested to chemo like maybe look at changing the courses a little bit so the dynamics because right now it's very predictable on how things are going to play out and it's not that fun when you already know how a race is going to be won or lost Mm -hmm. so you mean mean, just in terms of how each individual race plays out exactly yeah Yeah. like you just you already know it's predictable uh you know and i look at the mountain bike world cup when you look, they just announced their calendar today and 
one, two, I think Mount St. Anne and Nova Mesta are the only two returning venues. Everything yeah. else is different. And they're super excited about it because yeah. new courses, new race strategies, you just, it's a new experience. And I think sometimes we just get into that autopilot, like, okay, yep, this is just how you do it. And it gets a little boring. Mm-hmm. So I think when you have new events or things like that, it kind of keeps it a little bit more fun. Yeah, it's funny you say that because at the RAD, early on in that race, there was this, uh, maybe at mile five, there was this pretty chunky technical two track section. And I had in the back of my mind and in the moment I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to make a big effort, go to the front and lead through here. And then as I did that, I was like, oh man, was this the right decision? Like what was the right move here? Because I didn't have any race experience with that event and that blueprint wasn't in my mind. Um, and I forget why, but I was chatting with Nicole earlier this year. And just as a thought exercise, I like recited everywhere I wanted to be on the Leadville course, like at a specific point, like I knew exactly what corner I wanted to move up on. I knew what bush like hangs into the course a little bit further because one year I accidentally shoulder checked Lachlan moving up and like whacked myself in the face with this, but like you get so much experience on these courses. Um, that I totally get what you're yeah. saying. And so the rad was shocking. I was like, oh my God, how, like, how do we do this again? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, and I think it's like a double-edged sword because I think when you have gone to an event for so long, you get comfortable and you know what to expect. And it's easier for us to process and it's a lot more chill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like people showing up to their local race. It's like, it's no big deal because you've done this so many times, you know exactly what to expect. But then you go to a pro level or a national level event and then after you've done a year or two of that then you're like okay i'm comfortable with the pro xct and then you go to a world cup and i never got to the point where i was showing up to the world cup stress-free i was always super stressed because i'm like it's a new way of you know you have schedules to train you can only be on course at this hour there's all these features and you know it's just a new environment and that adaptability can be really hard but it's also part of the process of being an athlete or you know, when it comes to the predictability too, I think, you know, Keegan and I were talking about Steamboat and he's like, I'm going to make this hard from the start. (laughs) I was like, oh, I hate you so much. I was like, "Uh, I don't want, I was like, I didn't think it would work, you know, because that race is always, you just get these massive groups until you're kind of on that south end loop. That's when things start to split up. And he was like, no, I'm going to rewrite how this race is raced. And, you know, props to him. He just went super hard and made that selection happen. And you know, when he came back to the finish line, when I finished, he was like, Hey, my tactic worked. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> except we got caught three and a half hours in. Yeah. But still, right. But it changed. It did. It did. Nobody expected sure. that to go. So yeah. there's also that aspect of like, how do you, are you, is somebody strong enough and willing enough to change up the script of how races are done, you mm-hmm. know? And I think today it got announced that for next year, all of the women will have their the yeah. women will have their own start at all mm-hmm. of the lifetime Grand Prix races, and they're starting actually with Big Sugar next weekend. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. And that's going to change completely on how we race. So mm-hmm. I think that's also really exciting, and it'll provide something fresh and new for the women. And I think a lot of racers that are super strong but just don't have that race tactic of racing with the boys and making those selections, I think we're going to start to see some new names emerge and hmm. they might not be winning, but they might be going on these crazy attacks. And normally you see like a Brennan Wurtz or a John Bolsterman or Lachlan, <laughs> yeah. you know, like you see all these people kind of take these flyers that 
as in the women's field, we never get to do that because why would I attack a group of men? Or like, yeah. if you're making that selection, there's one or two other girls. So, and you're leading the race. So like you just would never make those right. sorts of efforts. Um, so I think the women are going to have some really exciting racing next year. And I think we're going to see some new riders see really their potential. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, it totally makes sense. So a minute ago, you mentioned the world cup. You raced the world cup for a few years. Not even, I think I Two maybe years. have like eight world cup starts to my name. Really? Yeah. I never really wow. never had that support to really go yep. over. Um, went to the Olympics for Argentina. I did. Yep. Um, talk to me a little bit about race in the world cup. Um, I think it's interesting kind of all the different angles that those of us doing this Grand Prix have come at it from. Obviously, it's lots and lots of different angles. We actually went to Fort Lewis together. You, I don't know if you would define yourself this way, but it almost seemed like you were a cyclocross racer first by a little bit, at least during college for... No, I mean, no? I definitely started mountain biking first, and then I got into cyclocross like my senior Sorry, year. Sorry, I don't mean first chronologically. I mean like you put slightly more emphasis on cross at times no no okay no no i was just because that year that that my freshman year was the first year i think that at fort lewis there was freshman riders that were going to nationals because mm. that would never happen and then it was like me layla zach graveson and garrett lumberg all freshmen that made oh, the really? national team and huh. that was like a really big deal because oh, cool. yeah. most of the time freshmen didn't get to go um but i did have a lot more success i think on the cyclocross front yeah but i think the field was just a little less competitive too gotcha so anyway fort lewis which means a mix of everything mm-hmm. um did you race some road there too i can't remember yeah hagen forced me to race road <laughs> <laughs> thankful in hindsight or I mean, I, the first one we did in Ogden, I yeah. cried and I crashed down the crit and I didn't start the road race. And then by my senior year, I was second at the road race. So lots of growth. I learned a lot, mm-hmm. but I'm also a highly coachable athlete where if I trust what you're saying, I'm willing to listen and apply. So I think it taught me a bit. I think really where I learned the most was in the team time trials and like learning how to work together and communicate mm. and all of that stuff. But the diversity that I had in college, I think kind of set me up to be just a really well-rounded cyclist. Mm-hmm. So collegiate racing. And then were those couple of years in the world cup kind of next? I can't remember exactly. No, I raced like nationally in the U S uh, did like a privateer program with Osos and pivot for a year. And then I signed with Chloe no, I was with 10 speed hero for cross because I right. wanted that's to, that's what I'm thinking of. That, that's kind of yeah. where I got a name yeah. like Luke at 10 speed hero just understands marketing and understands mm-hmm. storytelling. And they have such a huge platform and they really promoted me and supported me at all these races. And that was kind of when I really started to dip my toes into a national level aspect of racing. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I, Courtney McFadden and I kind of did a team together that was on pivot. So that also allowed me to be part of the stance pivot pro team that Chloe Woodruff was running Mm -hmm. back then. Yeah. That's what I was remembering. And then you, yeah. And then you did a couple of years world cup. So thinking back on that world cup period, do you have any 
lingering interest there? Or do you feel like that door is, is pretty well closed and you're happy with this whole like melting pot of gravel and like sort of weird one-off mountain bike races? Both actually. Um, I, I'm not comfortable in the air. Like I hate jumps, drops, all of that stuff. And I look at the courses that they're doing these days <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if I could do this. And, um, you know, I would definitely have to really do a big camp of just skill focus to just be able to have the confidence. I know I can do it, but I always think worst case scenario, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to go over the handlebars. I'm mm-hmm. going to break a collarbone. And those are just risks that I'm not willing to take. Um, gravel is probably more dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, but I feel a lot more in control, you know, um, but you know, it's the scene here in the U S is really nice and not having to travel to Europe and getting to be home. Mm -hmm. That's also really huge and nice. You know, that being said, I think I, especially in the spring, I'm normally really, really fit. And sometimes, you know, like last year I showed up to a pro XCT here in Fayetteville and I just raced like a complete idiot because I didn't care about UCI points. I didn't care if I finished first or if I finished fifth or seventh or DNF'd, you know, and I won a C1 there hmm. just because I rode the front hard and got away and uh, was it a Canadian um, almost caught me at the end, but I like managed to hold her off for a little bit. But, you know, Kate was there, Sevilla, Gwen, Haley, mm-hmm. they were all there. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I don't really care about XC anymore, but here's like an effort, you know? Um, so sometimes curious, but it's such a, it's such a hard thing to go there and you really need to have the support to make it worth your while. And I never like to waste my sponsor's money to just go to a race and participate. Like I would like to always give my best effort forward and, I'm like, ah, logistically, it's like kind of hard. You're like, well, is it really worth it or is it really worth my time to go over? So, yeah, um, fair enough. Yeah. And just I always look at the results and, you know, with a few, a few exceptions, it just seems like such a tumble dryer of success. You know, like you can be on top of the world for half a season or maybe even a full season and then just the most dominant racers all of a sudden spend an entire year just struggling to break the top 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think, you know, mentally that's gotta be really, really, really hard. Even when you're at that level. Yeah. Um, and it's so different than, you know, the world tour, for example, where you could maybe those natural ebbs and flows happen of, of level, but you're able to just adjust a little bit of your role in the team and, and still able to contribute. Yeah. Um, I just think the world cup is like so brutal mentally and the level right now is insane. Yeah. You know, and the, the power that they're doing and their repeatability, I was talking with Haley Batten about this. I was like, these efforts, I just don't do these efforts anymore because why would I train to have a super sharp VO two when I'm racing for 200 miles in Kansas or a hundred miles at 10,000 feet, you know, Mm -hmm. like I have a really good engine and I can ride my bike really fast on the flats, but you know, over the past two years, my repeatability of high three minute and one minute power has really dropped off because I haven't worked on it. And then I show up to something like gravel worlds or even, you know, racing Haley here last weekend. It's just, she just had these really high power efforts that she could do all the time that I just like, my body's just no longer trained for those Mm -hmm. efforts. Um, so I think that's like something that my coach and I are trying to figure out. How do we if I want to succeed actually at gravel worlds, 
have to really change up my training and figure out how that fits with what the team wants me to do, what I want to do next year and all that stuff. But yeah, it's a, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about gravel worlds. How did you, I know you didn't have the race that you were hoping for, Mm -hmm. but overall, what did you think of the experience? Yeah, no, I think it was cool. Uh, I mean, I went there last year. I've always been really supportive of the UCI coming in, you know, and this year they got a lot of backlash regarding the whole media thing. But I think a lot of people were misinformed on why the media, why there wasn't coverage for the women's race. And it wasn't the UCI. It was actually like the local level organization that's in charge of putting all that together. And the UCI didn't catch that they weren't going to provide it until like the very last minute. Um, So that was definitely a bit of a bummer, but I mean, I think the field was stacked and you were racing some of the best road racers in the world. And it would have been really cool if it lined up where you could have the mountain bikers come in that race the world cup. Cause I mm-hmm. think it would have really suited them as well. Yeah, agreed. Um, it's like a marathon mountain bike race. It yeah. Felt like, yeah, for sure. But like, yeah, I mean the power that those girls were doing on the climb was just insane. And, uh, it was really cool to race them. I wasted a lot of energy making sure that they couldn't toss me around. Um, <laughs> and in hindsight, I maybe should have just, hung out with Lauren Steven a bit more. She was kind of always just last in the group, but always there. And yeah, I just, I just learning a lot. And I think for me, that was really good. It's okay. Another year of, okay, I need to go back to the drawing board and it actually provides a lot of fire and motivation for next year. And it's like, okay, what can I do to get better? How can I improve? What do I need to work on? Yep. Unfortunately it means I need to do a lot more VO2 going forward, which always sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of just tempo threshold work, but, um, yeah, it was, I, I really liked it. And I, next year's in Belgium. I'll probably would be back too, but yeah. How do you think it could potentially fit in moving forward for you, especially in light of the Grand Prix? I assume you're going to stay focused on the Grand Prix next year. TBD. I mean, I applied cause I knew I could get in Michelle said I was the first one to apply, which was really funny because <laughs> I didn't reply, you know, since I knew you're in, because you're top 15, it's like, well, I don't really have to answer all these questions, you know, and the question that they asked, like, why do you want to be part of a Grand Prix? I was like, payout. Like, that's, it's 100% a financial reason for me to do the Grand Prix. Um, but then I look at now BWR has their little Triple Crown series that's pretty early on. I really want to go back to Cape Epic. And then if I do really want to actually perform at UCI Gravel Worlds, I might have to change my fall. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, I don't know, it's like, I think you win something once. It's not like I have to prove that I can win the Grand Prix. Like, obviously, I was extremely dominant this year. And I think maybe I'll put a bit more focus on other races. But then I think I can still be top, for sure, top 10, maybe even top five on the Grand Prix without it being my, like, these are my eight races, you know, obviously something like Unbound is super important for the brand, for Specialized mm-hmm. and just the industry. So yeah, I'm going to try to perform there again, but then maybe put emphasis in other races as well. And hopefully my B level fitness will still be good enough to get me a top five. <laughs> um, how much freedom, so I know Specialized urged you guys on the off-road team to do a couple of the world series races this year um how much freedom do you have to pick your own schedule at this point are there a couple of events that they 
just really, really want you at, and then the rest you can kind of pick and choose and they just trust that they're going to be, you know, big high profile events. Cause that's what you're motivated by or how does that work? Cause it's, you're, it's, you're on a team. It's not like you're a privateer, obviously mm-hmm. as many of us are. Yeah, no, we're actually going through that right now, trying to figure out. I think the first two years was pretty easy. It was, uh, we just do the grand preseason and then add the races that we're excited about. But I think from a you know marketing standpoint, our team is uh, under global marketing for gravel. So some of the mountain bike stuff for them is like, well, if you guys not doing Sea Otter, but then doing BWR California makes more sense, then maybe that's what you do. Or maybe instead of Schwalm again, you go do a gravel race somewhere else. Um, so it's, and we have such, th- we have three different athletes. So we kind of have to figure out what everybody's goals are and, for me, I'm the type of athlete that I'm like, okay, specialize my main sponsor. What does the brand want to achieve? Like, tell me what races you want to win and then give me those. And then I'll be like, okay, I think I can target these two, you know, and I will prepare myself for those. Cause I think at the end of the day, my job is to make my sponsors happy. And the easiest way to deliver that value is trying to perform at the races that they really care about. Um, and, you know, I've always been super open that for me, the cycling thing, it's never been a dream of mine. Like, I mean, when I was a junior, I'm like, okay, that'd be great to be a professional cyclist. And then I, you know, I started dating Keegan when I was like 18. So we're super young and I saw the work ethic that he had. And I was just like, this is not for me. Like I don't have that (laughs) drive in me. Like I'm not, no thanks. You know, uh, then I matured, went through college, met my coach and she definitely lit and fire in me. And now I'm like, okay, like if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this well. And I like to see myself as a high yield, like a, uh, return on investment, like a, you know, like pay me X and I'm, I will deliver you two times the results, you know, and just, mm-hmm. that's really what drives me is just, I never want a sponsor to feel like oh, we just wasted a lot of time on Sophia. Like I want them to be like, dang, Sophia delivered for us above and beyond what it was expected. And I think that's just been constantly my trajectory since pursuing this as a career. It's like, okay, I think I've always delivered more than was expected of me. And that's just how I, just how I operate, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that mindset is really interesting. And I wanted to dig into that because, um, I think it's potentially sort of unusual. I think a lot of people, well, I don't know. It's always dangerous to generalize. And especially in the women's field, it seems like there's talent coming from all kinds of different directions. Now, sometimes people come into the sport even later in life and turns out they're, they're really talented, but I just think this idea of you seeing it as a job first and as a passion second is really unique because it's so freaking hard. Mm -hmm. And so it's amazing to me that you're able to stay committed and stay successful despite that. Um, How old are you now? Uh, 29. 29. So do you, like sitting here today, you've won loads of the biggest off-road races, Cape Epic, Unbound, Leadville, the Grand Prix this year. Do you think you want to do this for a decade longer or like three years? It's a really interesting question. I think in the gravel space, I'm a baby. Like you look at the result sheet of the women and everybody's 33, 35, I think it's on average, and I'm 29. So it's like I, I still have a lot to improve on my endurance. 
I think right now is a really good time to be in the sport. If you can be performing, I think there's a, there's just a lot of funds being pumped into the sport. Yeah, and we're it's really lucky. I think extremely. some people forget. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you just, and you never know how long is this wave going to last. Yeah. Um, that being said, what I love about my job is I get paid to be fit and take care of my body and sleep eight hours. And I just, I love training. Like that is the part that I enjoy the most is just, yep, wake up, have breakfast, go ride my bike. Did And I, I'm very diligent with my training and I never skip a workout. I do what I'm told. And, you know, obviously like for me, that is what I love the most. And then I've had to not get creative, but like really light a fire in me to want to perform at these races and mm. like, okay, this is like my scorecard. This is because I can perform at these races is why I get to live the lifestyle that I get to do and I get to be paid to be healthy. Um, so it's almost, you know, I've worked with a performance coach on how to, okay, Sophia 2.0, right? Like a Sophia bike racer is a very different Sophia than off the bike. Like when I am on my bike and I'm racing or training, it's like, okay, I'm at a job, like very focused, but then off the bike, I'm a lot more relaxed and you know, when I'm home, it's just, it's pretty chill. Um, so, and then I think as a female, you get the whole thing. Okay. Do you eventually want kids or mm -hmm, not, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's that time line is limited for us. So that's a no whole other conversation, but I think for sure another three years easy. Um, and I think the sport is just growing so much. So it's just, I think it'll change a lot between now and 2026 or for sure. So, yeah. So we'll, what is Sophia away from the race course? Like, I know you love to cook. Yes. How else do you fill your time? And one other thing that should be noted quickly that I think people forget is just how much the job bleeds over into off the bike. Like the amount of maintenance stuff that goes on, um, is super time consuming. So it's not like, Oh, you have a four hour training ride. What do you do with the other 10 hours? Like, it's not like that, mm -hmm. but with your other two or three hours, whatever it is, what, what do you like to do? Yeah. Well, I do still hold a part-time job, actually. Um, I work for this bean-to-bar chocolate company in Heber City, Utah called Ritual Chocolate. I do a lot of their bookkeeping admin work. I've worked for them ever since I moved to Utah, and I just they allow me to work remote, and it's kind of a nice little side gig that allows me to disconnect from the bike. Um, you know, I definitely don't have the freedom of being off-off, like, you know, I wake up, have breakfast and I'm sending emails. I go train, come back, sit on the couch, do some more emails. So I'm pretty busy. And, uh, taking care of Keegan is actually a lot of work sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Love that guy to death. But sometimes I'm like, oh, you just have it so easy with me around sometimes. <laughs> uh, but no, I like to cook. I like to hang out with my dog and, you know, I'm a home body person. Like I'm not somebody that likes to go out to drink or go out to dinner. Um, so I think that's why this lifestyle I love it so much because I get to go to sleep at like nine, you know, nine, nine thirty, <laughs> wake up and, uh, you know, it's a slow, it's a slow pace of life. And yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I think I'm pretty boring outside of bike, but that's also right makes now. Makes a good athlete though. It makes a really good athlete. And right now it's not so much about how hard you can train, but it's like, how good can you recover? So each mm -hmm. you're nailing each training session and, you know, making sure that you're 
recovered and eating well and stretching. You know, we have our little stretching routine every day. It's like a half hour little thing that we have little timers that tells us when to switch our stretches and incorporating, incorporating all that into your lifestyle. And that's where I've been super thankful to have Keegan just because ever since I started bike racing, he's kind of always been there. And to me, he has such a high level work ethic but for me, that's normal, like that's standard mm-hmm. because I don't know any different. I, don't, I never knew that people skipped their workouts or did five out of the seven interval sets or cut a ride short or skipped a ride or anything like that. Like he never does that. So I never thought that that was an option. So like I've been able to show up to start this cycling journey with such a good work ethic just because that's just the normal. That's what I saw. And that was the environment that I was around and it's led I think to a lot of my success. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think our whole life is really centered around performing on the bike and, you know, it's nice that he gets it and I get it. And, you know, sometimes it means that the relationship has to come second to that bike because we have such big goals and we have to be really honest on, you know, okay. Like you're really focused on Leadville, like, okay, let's put a lot of emphasis there or like, this is a goal for you. And, you know, let's really focus on that stuff. But, um, yeah. What do you, I'm curious about that part-time job because I mean, it doesn't take a genius to know that like you don't need it financially, Correct. but you, I assume it's like, like you're saying, it's a nice little diversion and I assume it feels kind of like a world apart in a way, uh, like socially, like Mm -hmm. the people that you work with there, it's probably very different than the people you work with this weekend. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, does it like, does that feel like, are you maintaining that position for some balance or, uh, two things. One, because I'm management level, I get health insurance. Nice. Okay. That's huge. (laughs) (laughs) And I can, I have Keegan declared as a, as a partner. So he's on my plan as well. So that's Mm -hmm. huge. Uh, but two, Ever since I started bike racing, I would always see these females that had a lot of success on the bike and they were having part-time jobs and then they would quit and then mm. they wouldn't be as fast. So oh, interesting. it's almost like, a, I'm like, ah, like, am I really, I just, I don't think I need that percentage gain yet of performance. I think maybe, maybe not next year, but the year after that might be something I need to consider. Like it's, it's a card I still have to play to like get faster and get better because it does take away and it does, you know, sometimes my recovery days, maybe I'm on a bit more calls or I just have a little bit more structure. If I'm in Utah, I have to go into the office and do things like that. So I do think sometimes it takes away, but they, they're super supportive and they totally understand that for me, the bike comes first and they're fully aware that I don't need to do this job. But I think, I've gone to, I'm so proficient at what I do that I think if they were to hire somebody to do what I do, they would work twice as long, Mm, mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's kind of like a nice little balance. Um, but no, I think it's also, yeah, just the fear of, Oh, what if, what if I quit that job and then I don't start, you know, performing like all these other women have. That's funny. Um, That's probably, it's almost like a superstition on steroids <laughs> like yeah. bike racers are very superstitious and the fact that you're not willing to quit your part-time job because you're worried your performance will drop is like the most hilariously superstitious <laughs> yeah, bike racer yeah. thing i've heard but it's That's true awesome. no but i think what it does I get it, I get it. <laughs> it makes you have a timeline and it makes yeah. you be a bit more diligent and i think 
the faster you get, the lazier you become. Mm. And I think, yeah, just having this little thing on the side that gives me a little bit of structure on the day. I have certain goals that I can achieve and just disconnect a little bit from the bike is really nice. But yeah, I mean, definitely this year I've thought about like, oof, like, should I go all in on the bike? And, you know, how big of that performance gain am I really leaving out because of all the, it's not stressful, but it is still stress. You're still, you know, sending emails, making phone calls and, you know, reaching out to new people. And I don't know, it definitely does add a bit more to my plate where I look at Keegan and he just finishes a ride and he's hanging out on the couch on Instagram, you know, um, and I'm like sitting there doing emails and phone calls. So it's a, I do see the differences in lifestyle that we get to have or, um, but yeah, I mean, time will tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about cooking quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I forget who I was talking to. It might have been it might have been Matt or it might have been Howie. And they were just talking about how amazing it is to have you as part of the team because you just love to make meals. Yeah. And they're like, it's so easy. We get amazing food. Um, what are some, like in terms of this passion, like are you the sort of, cook where you just make stuff up and you like tinkering or are you on the new york times cooking website like looking up all kinds of cool niche recipes and following them like you would a training plan no and i think there i how do i say this um i mean i've always liked cooking and i think this year i have taken that time in the kitchen as like almost therapy and like just unwinding for the day but really what's happened this past year is I started to work with a food coach. Um, mm. so Alan, uh, he's like the performance chef on Instagram. He has some very high end sports clients and he will look at my training peaks and see what I'm doing for the day. And then he actually puts in what I'm supposed to have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No way. Yep. Holy uh, cow. Yeah. That was one of the big things that my coach thought I could gain Cause I've always been so good about baby steps. Like don't bite more than you can chew. And it's like, okay, like focus on a different thing each year. And this year it was nutrition. And I think having somebody that understands cycling and can look at what I'm doing and provide recipes for that is really nice. And, you know, we started the year and I told the guys like, Hey, I'm doing this nutrition food plan thing. Uh, so I have these dinner things that I'm planning on eating. If you guys want in, I'm happy to make more, you know? And then that turned into Sophia's now team chef. And I have, uh, it's good. I mean, I just, I've your third part-time job, my third part-time job. Yeah. I didn't care of all the boys. Um, but I've really gotten to really good at online shopping. Like Mm. it has actually saved me a lot of time and actually it's really nice. I don't have to think about what I have for dinner. Like it's just all my training peaks, training peaks runs my life. Um, so it's been really fun and it's actually added a lot of food variety into my diet. And I think I've always ate well, but I think with this, it's just a little bit more thought out and I don't have to think about like, okay, like when can I cut carbs? When do I need to refuel? How does, how could I eat different breakfasts and have it be, you know, not always be pancakes. And I don't know, it's just added a really good level of diversity and the guys are like, oh, this is really nice. Like Sophia mm-hmm. just cooks dinner. All we got to do is do the dishes. So um, that's where it really came from. Yeah. So I think it's interesting because cycling has always had such an interesting relationship with food, not always in a healthy way, even just at Worlds last weekend. I remember we were eating, we had like a USA cycling sort of dinner thing and uh, we had this 
guy that was on the team, David Van Orstel, who lives in Italy, and he actually races for an Italian team, uh, but he's from the States. And Alexi, Brennan, and I were like, oh, we just raced Worlds, you know, five-plus-hour race, and, you know, a big experience checked off the list. Like, let's order all kinds of stuff. And we got, like, these seafood platters and, like, different kinds of pizza. And we... He was just, David was mind boggled at how much, how much we were eating. And he was like, on my Italian team, like you're not allowed to have pizza Mm -hmm. until the off season. They limit quantities. And you guys right now are eating more food than like our entire team would be allowed to eat culturally. And that's super old school, but it was another reminder. I had so many reminders at Worlds, but one of them was like, man, yeah, there's this crazy traditional, especially like world tour or road oriented culture around food that is unique and you know is very performance driven but has also created some issues over the years um when people hear that like training peaks is feeding you what you're going to eat for the day they're probably like oh my god that sounds really intense my guess is like it's actually probably pretty fun and there's a lot of freedom with what you can do with that and I know you probably see it as an advantage, so you don't have to give that much away. But I am curious, like what's something that you've learned through that process that was surprising? Like what's something that, that's, that you've changed maybe in terms of how you fuel, what you fuel with, what you shop for, whatever? I think, I mean, the first week it was definitely, Keegan wasn't very supportive actually of when I was starting this food plan. <laughs> Why? Um, he was just like, oh, you're going to be counting, you're going to be weighing everything and be doing all this stuff, you know, like, and he just was like, and then what am I going to do? Am I going to, are you both going to be cooking every day? Like he was just, he was mostly concerned about himself. Probably, you know, um, (laughs) yeah, he wasn't, he actually wasn't that supportive. And the first week I got, I had some really weird recipes and I was like, it wasn't good. And I was like, oh my goodness. And like, this is not, how am I going to do this? And then I kind of you know, called Alan and then we chatted and I'm like, okay, yeah, these recipes, not so much. And then second week, amazing food. Um, and now Keegan really likes it. And he like, he's always like, Hey, can you send me a re- this recipe? So like, cause we spent the past two months apart. Actually, I moved to Santa Cruz for two months to do some sea level training and preps for world. So, and he decided to stay at home. Um, so I'm like, yeah, like go remind yourself what it's like to have to cook dinner every day, you know? Um, but I think the biggest lesson that I have learned was maybe I think I was always over feeling on carbs on my easy days just because mm. I was always prepared for the next day. Um, and I think, you know, I was able to cut a bit more carbs on my easy days just and then also just, I don't know, like all the health things like turmeric and ginger and, you know, fresh pressed carrot juice and you know, chia seeds and just all these little nutritional things that have a lot of value. He's just incorporating it into my day to day. And I just don't have to think about that stuff anymore or cutting fiber. Like we have a three day protocol, which bless the guys. They're always happy to the pre-race dinner is always the same the day before we do like a pasta night and I do like, um, kind of like a carbonara sauce with like an egg and we actually put a little bit of bacon in it. And then the day before is a risotto with pesto and chicken. And this weekend is actually changing to butternut squash because butternut squash is here. And, you know, there's all of these things that I don't have to think about. Oh, I need to cut fiber. Like it's just, it's just done for me. And it's, 
giving me a lot more time and I don't have to second guess that I'm eating the thing, the right things or the wrong things. And, you know, we've definitely cut out eating out, which, you know, eating out is really nice, but we spend so much time and effort preparing for these races. And when you go eat out, out, you actually have a huge risk of getting food poisoning. Mm -hmm. And that I made the mistake actually before this is so embarrassing, but I'm just going to tell the story because we're on the topic. Uh, we, so we've been just full gas, um, building furniture here, moving into the, the new place. And we looked, this is, you're going to like, you might not be surprised, but this is one way we're very different. <laughs> I looked up and it was like 8.15, 8.30 the night before the little sugar mountain bike race. I was like, fuck, like I still have to make dinner. And Nicole was like, let's just door dash something. It's yeah. like, okay, good call. We're going to save time and energy. And I was like, what do we door dash? And I really wanted to door dash Yayo's because they have really good, Mexican food that's like healthy and it's going to be an easy way to get, you know, quality rice and chicken or whatever. And they didn't do DoorDash. So I was like, okay, we're just going to be cliche and we're going to get Chipotle because now it's 8.45 PM. Um, got Chipotle and I was going through and I thought I ordered the right hot sauce, but I ordered the spiciest one <laughs> and it absolutely wrecked me. I won't go into details, but it wrecked me for like 24 hours. Yeah. So the entire first half of the race on Sunday I thought I was going to have to pull over and do oh like a Tom Dumoulin. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was just such a classic and like dumb example of like, you think you're maybe getting too OCD about the details. And then in the middle of the race, I was like, I'm having this experience for the dumbest reason ever. Yeah. And you know better, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 100%. And, I mean, you could have just boiled some water, done some pasta and done some pesto and been just fine. For sure. And taken, what, 10 minutes, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think that's the thing. It's you have to, like I said before, my life and Keegan's life is so focused on performing on the bike that <clears throat> all these minute things we're not focusing on just because they're part of our day-to-day, right? Like it's an, it, it's it's just what we do and it's just it's a habit and it's just, it's just so, it's just what we do. So to me, it doesn't seem hard or like, Oh, you're having to focus on all these things. So like, no, it's just what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Um, I want to talk about your background and your family a little bit. So when you were in Santa Cruz pre world, you were, I think you were staying with your family. Yeah. I was in my aunt and uncle. Cool. And then, is the rest of your family still over, or not the rest of your family, but aren't you from Los Gatos? Yeah, that's where we moved. You moved to? Yes. Are they still there just over the hill from Santa Cruz? No, they no? actually all, and when I say Santa Cruz, it really means Cots Valley, which is like okay. the little, first little town when you go up over the 17. But right when I graduate, my, my first year of college, my parents actually moved from Los Gatos to Scotts Valley. Mm. And then now my two older brothers have moved their families there as well. So in Scotts Valley, I have my parents, my two siblings, and then my aunt and uncle. And they have been there for a while. Wow. Um, so it's like... And how many siblings do you have? Because I, th- I didn't... Five. Yeah. So you have a younger brother, older sister, and two older brothers. And then an older sister. And another... Holy cow. Yeah, yeah we're okay. six. Yeah. Wow. There's a big age gap between the older three and the younger three. Uh, like there's a 18 year gap between the oldest and Matias and then baby Ben. Uh, mm-hmm. So big age gap between oldest and, young, and youngest, but it's almost like I have three, like my older siblings, my three oldest are more like parents in a way. Mm. Uh, especially one of my brothers, Julian, I'm just super close with. Uh, he's definitely more like a, maybe not a dad, but like, I don't know. It's just, 
he can offer a lot of advice, you know, that sometimes like my sister that's two years older than me, there's not like really, we've lived the same. It's mm-hmm. not like she has a lot more insight. Um, but yeah, we're a big family. Yeah. And you were born in Argentina. Yep. In the Patagonia. And moved to the U.S. when you were how old? 12. 12. Yeah. Okay. Then by that time, my oldest three siblings were already in the U.S. doing college. So it was just me, my sister, Kado, and my little brother, Ben, with my parents that moved. And we like lived in the first month or two. We were living in my grandpa's one-bedroom apartment. He was in Argentina. Hmm. So it was like five people in a one-bedroom apartment. And then a month later, this apartment opened up in the same complex. And it was a two-bedroom. So like my sister and I shared a room and then my little brother's room was actually the living room. <laughs> and then, you know, a couple of years later, my parents were doing financially better and then it's like, hey, you get a three bedroom. And then we moved to a different townhouse that had a pool. And then, you know, a couple of years after that, then they were able to buy a house. So it was like really cool to see them kind of move so late in their life and just still be able to have kind of this American dream and you know, had I not moved to the U.S., I definitely wouldn't be riding bikes. And, you know, I look at my life now and, you know, I just, I'm doing very, very well. And it's just crazy to think like, oh, when I moved to the U.S., we were living in a one-bedroom apartment. And look at now, look at how good my parents are. Look at the life I've been able to do for myself. And, you know, super thankful that those opportunities exist here in the U.S. What prompted that move for your family? Um, economics in Argentina, they've just been super bad. Um, my dad was retiring from the military there at the time. And then they always knew, they always wanted us, my mom's American too. Mm. Um, and they always wanted us to come to the U S for college. So, and then they realized, well, why wait until Ben is 18? Like, let's just move the younger three now so they can do middle school and high school Mm. in the U S and have that transition be a lot easier. Um, so I mean that was really the main move, but like, it was such a stressful time for my parents. Like they just, they didn't know. Like, I think my dad was telling me the other day that he had some like weird heart arrhythmia happening the week before we moved just because of the amount of stress. stress, Like they put everything into moving us to the U S and you just, you know, they could have just gone broke and we could have, you know, I wouldn't say homeless would be a very stretched term, but like. It's a leap of faith. It was very much yeah. so a leap mm-hmm. of faith. And, um, you know, even when it came to doing college, like my, all my siblings did community college and I was the first one that, and only one that, you know, my parents took out alone so I could attend Fort Lewis college. And, mm. you know, that's when I, why, when I was in college, it was school first. And then I worked 20 hours a week at Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory mm-hmm. to, uh, be able to pay rent and all of that stuff. And then third was the bike. So that's why in college I was never fully focused on trying to be a bike racer because for me and my priorities, I'm like, hey, my parents took out a huge loan so I could come get an education. I'm not going to throw that away. Like it always bothered me when people wouldn't go to class and Mm. not try. And I'm like, ah, like you guys are wasting so much money. Like, and you know, a lot of people were on full ride scholarships. You're just like, what, what a luxury and what a privilege they had, you know? So I never took my schooling for granted. And that's why I was such a, you know, I don't know. You probably remember in class, I was always participating, doing my homework. You were definitely (laughs) a driven student. I remember for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so growing up was, 
uh, English and Spanish, were they spoken pretty equally at home or? No, 100% Spanish. Really? Uh, yeah, but my mom founded a bilingual school. It was like the first bilingual school in our area uh, because the school that my mom wanted us to go to, it was like a Christian school, but they wouldn't allow kids whose parents were in the military. Oh, weird. So my mom was like, hey, if the kids can't go there, I'm just going to start a school. And she actually started one of the more successful bilingual schools there. So it was a weird schedule where you had school all in Spanish in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we always had two hours of English. So by the time I came to the States, I could say like, hi, my name is Sophia. My favorite color is green. <laughs> I like to play outside, you know, like very basic and even my first year of school, I didn't speak a word because my accent was super thick. And, mm. you know, now a lot of people can't even tell that I'm not no. American, right? Like, it's totally. so fluid. Yeah. It's uh. it's impressive because I have friends who grew up um, not in the U.S. or from different countries originally. And it's interesting how for some the accent lingers uh, quite significantly. And then for other folks like you, it's basically imperceptible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tried really hard to get rid of it, which I kind of regret now. But back then, <laughs> I was like, I don't want them to know that I'm foreign, you know, uh-huh. just when you're young and not very educated. <laughs> how how hard a transition was that? Because, like, there's the language component, but I feel like culturally, it had to just have been crazy. Yeah, I mean, the, the so many things, like my only perception of the u.s that i had were all the movies right and you have the Mm -hmm. mean girls and the cool girls and the nerds and all that stuff so i think i thought that those dynamics were a bit more real than they actually were um and then you know we moved to los gatos that was kind of it's this really fancy town in the bay area that a lot of you know the wealthy tech people live in and the only reason we moved there is because my mom's sister lived there and she had two kids that were the same age as me and my sister so we could just do school and at least have a friend like that's the only reason we moved Mm. to california it was a very drastic change from being in the patagonia where like the outdoors are your backyard to middle of the Bay area. You have to drive over the hill to go to the ocean. You got to drive three hours to go to the snow and it just, California wasn't for me. And that's how I ended up in Durango. I was like, I want to do an outdoors town. I don't want to have outdoors be a chore or like something that you have to plan. I just like want to walk outside of my door and be able to go for a hike and, you know, not be in traffic. Um, but no, I mean, it was super hard and, yeah, I mean, I, I was at such a vulnerable age too. Yeah, like twelve you're just, is crazy. Yeah, middle school and yeah. yeah, I made a lot of mistakes, but um, yeah, I definitely grew up pretty quick and definitely matured a bit sooner than I would say a lot of my my peers. But I think it's also my personality too. Mm-hmm. So, how often do you go back to Patagonia? Oh, I haven't been back in a long time, actually, yeah. um, just because. Now I do have a sister that's down there. She is getting, uh, Kato is getting married next February, 2025. So I have a trip planned then, but with the difference of seasons. So like summer here is winter there. So I'm not going to, mid-summer here is like peak training season. I'm not going to go to winter. And then when it's winter here, summer there, and you're like, okay, I could go, but the travel is super long. You know, I, I'm just so Americanized and I love being home too, that I don't really get to go back as much as I want to. And then when I was racing XC, at least I would go back to race nationals, but I haven't been back in 
in a while, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Where in Patagonia were you born? Uh, it's a small town called Escal. Uh, it's like pretty much up against the Andes, kind of midway in Patagonia, huh. south of Bariloche, which is like a pretty famous ski town. Um, but it's crazy. Like I haven't been back since the Olympics and like there's like posters of me up on the oh, streets. Really? Yeah. Like, you know, there's, I'm an honorable member of the town and, um, yeah, everybody's always asking my sister and my parents when they're back visiting, like, Oh, how's Sophia doing? Like I'm this kind of like celebrity there yet. I have yet to go back. So mm. I'm really looking forward to going back in 2025 and just kind of connecting with, with that community a bit more and, you know, seeing what things I can help them with and grow. Cause it's a really active community, actually. Um, a lot of runners, a lot of, you know, try not try like off-road triathletes, I would say, and cyclists. So, um, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, what else? I mean, one thing I was curious about this, we're sort of like totally jumping timeline here, but uh, we didn't talk about it earlier. Um, I, I forget who I was talking to. It might've been Keegan at Worlds, but we were just talking about how um, having sewn up the Grand Prix, you guys only have to roll across the start line. You don't have to finish. And actually I'm super pissed about this because <laughs> last year I got really sick the day before Big Sugar and I was told that I had to finish. Well, if you had to, to score points, you had to finish. But I could have, I didn't need to score points, so I could have finished. I think now you needed to score points. I remember this because I oh. asked that question too. Because I asked Ryan, I was like, hey, do you get points for being pulled out or DNFing? And he said, no, you have to finish to get points. Because you had a drop race before, right? That's right. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you don't have to worry about that. You can Correct. just roll across the start line. Um, Keegan was sitting right here a few days ago, and he's all fired up to race. He has nothing to gain professionally or financially. Capped on bonuses, no prize money, won the Grand Prix, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But he's still fired up to race. It sounds like you might just kind of party train it or are you are you thinking about even just pulling after the start what's your what are you thinking going into this weekend yeah i mean at schwam again i would have told you i am gonna start and i'm gonna pull off and then i'm gonna wait an hour and then i'm gonna go ride the 50 because i start an hour later um then last week they announced we're gonna have a separate start Mm, and i'm mm -hmm. like okay like (laughs) You know, that was like really the main reason. I was like, what do I have to gain by racing this master art race, going out to race with the men and there's no prize money, right? Like, what do I have to, I, had, I didn't see I had anything to gain. Like, okay, maybe I could try to perform at another race for Specialized, but I have done a lot of perf- high level performances for Specialized. Like I, I have, in their eyes, I've had a very solid year. Like mm-hmm. I don't need to go deliver anything else to make them happy. Uh, but then now they've thrown this women's only start and then uh, new Bedoma is coming. So I don't know. I definitely am pretty checked out this week. I'm relaxing. Like today we rented e-bikes from the experience center with Russell and just went and ripped around and I probably won't pre-ride any of the course, maybe the start and the finish just cause I still want to ride my bike this week. Um, but I think I'm just going to see how I feel and then. Do you have risk in the back of your mind at all? Like, uh, getting hurt? No, 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 especially with the separate start. Yeah. 
I think it'll be a lot more tamer. I think the biggest incentive is to go see the dynamics because that's Mm -hmm. how we're going to race next year. And it's a new challenge and I have no idea how that's going to go. So I think that's really why I'm like, okay, maybe I will go. But then I also thought it'd be really cool for me to go and experience the Spirit of Gravel. Like I've never lined up to a gravel (laughs) event. That's so true. You know, I've never lined up to a gravel event to like go have fun or go enjoy it. Like Mm -hmm. it's always been 100% a performance focus thing for me. So it's like, oh, like maybe I can show people that I'm not just this cutthroat racer. Like I can have fun when I don't need to actually race, you know? And it's such a unique opportunity to have to be at a race but not need to race it because mm-hmm. if it wasn't part of the Grand Prix and we weren't required to roll across the start, I would have booked a flight home Monday, mm-hmm. right? Like I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm still a little bit up in the air and just see how my body kind of does, but mentally I'm definitely pretty checked out for sure. So, yeah. Uh, I hear you on experiencing racing a different way. I mean, Nicole doesn't really, she's not very competitive, but I have, watched other people you know go out and do some of these big rides with their significant other and like stop at the aid stations and maybe you ride a section really hard but most of the time you're just out there on an adventure together it sounds awesome um Mm -hmm. it's almost like less pressure well yeah and like i mean boswell like has it figured i know he's not really racing full-time anymore so he can afford to do it but like tries to win unbound every year but also then just rides an e-bike at steamboat and like drinks beer whole yeah. day yeah 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 and go support people and help <laughs> exactly people out. fix yeah. people's flats like that yeah. sounds pretty awesome yeah um so i totally get that yeah no so we'll see i'll probably uh yeah it, it's honestly going to be a thing maybe i'll pull out at the first feed zone maybe i i, I honestly have no idea what i'm going to do but and i think that's where keegan and i are very different he's such a he loves racing and i'm just like well i have nothing to gain so mm-hmm. like why you know it's I, I think I get to reward myself to have that like time off. And then I just want, I don't want to interfere in the fight for the overall for the other women as well. I just kind of, cause otherwise I'd probably go and help my friends, you know, like Scarda, Haley and Sarah, like I would try to help them out and I wouldn't really be racing for myself. So like, what's the fun in that too, you know? Yeah. Fair enough. Cool. How much time are you going to take off? Uh, so we go home Sunday and we have two weeks. We're moving homes with Keegan actually. So that's the other reason why I want to take this week chill just because I know I get home and it's full gas, moving furniture, building furniture. Yeah. It's very stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to do a five days in Cabo to nice. be in the beach and just relax. And then at some point do our migration to Arizona. And then I have a trip to Chile with Specialized for some media stuff in December. So. Cool. I don't know, but three weeks without riding and then kind of slowly get back into it. Yeah. I love my off season. I also love my rest days. I never understood. Like I've always had like mid season, like a week off riding the bike or, and I never understood that people get really stressed about having time off the bike. And I'm like, I take my three weeks and then that first month of training, it's not that I get depressed, but I'm just so disconnected from just that wake up, train, all of that stuff that. I'm like, oh my God, all these sponsors, like they're so screwed this year. Like I am no good. That was the best (laughs) year I've ever had. Like, how am I going to beat that? Like Uh, I am so slow and you know, you're riding zone two and your heart rate is like zone four and you're just like, oh my goodness, like I suck. And then, um, 
then I kind of go to Tucson and I get fit and everything's okay. But, um, yeah, I really enjoy the, the time away from my bike and probably just ride my e-bike if anything. So sounds good. Yeah. Cool. Sophia. Thank you. I'm glad we finally did this. That was fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hello again, everyone. Once again, thank you so much for listening today. I wanted to give you a reminder that over on the Adventure Stash Instagram, we're doing weekly sock giveaways with some fun weekly quizzes. Uh, Y'all have been doing great about tuning into those and participating, and uh, it's been fun to see a couple of the winners show up to some of the events that I've already been at. Um, Yeah, it's just kind of a fun little interactive thing that we're doing over on social. So if you want in on the action, go over to the Adventure Stash on Instagram. I also want to say a big, big thank you to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing this show each and every week. Um, Next week, we have our seventh and final Grand Prix recap episode, and I'll be wrapping up my season. It's been a long and arduous, especially the last seven weeks season, seven weekends in a row all over the place. Uh, Lots of fun. I don't know that we'll do it again this way uh, next year. But it was a great fact-finding mission at Worlds and at Nationals and everything in between. Um, And I'm excited already for 2024, both in terms of the podcast and also racing. Plans are already coming together. It feels like as soon as you wrap up one season, uh, you start planning the next one. So lots to look forward to. But until then, we will catch you next week.